You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. Connecting with people from around the world is much easier now than it has ever been before. With the internet, phones, and fast travel, we can build relationships and networks in new ways, breaking through the barriers of national boundaries. This development of relationships and their influence despite national borders is known as transnationalism, a social phenomenon that we will be focusing on throughout a four-part series. Join the conversation as we kick off the series with Lauren Copeland, Patmanayasan Samogeshwaran, and Agata Gadelchek as they interview Nina Glick-Schiller, one of the pioneers of transnational studies. Hello, we're here with Dr. Nina Glick-Schiller. Dr. Glick-Schiller is founding director of the Research Institute for Cosmopolitan Culture and professor emeritus of the University of Manchester and the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Glick-Schiller has published more than 80 articles and several books on migration, transnational processes, and social relations, diasporic connections, and long-distance nationalism. She has also conducted research in Haiti, the U.S., and Germany, and worked with migrants from all around the world. Her recent work in Who's Cosmopolitanism offers a critical look at the concept of cosmopolitanism. So I'm Lauren. I got that I am Patmanesa. So thank you for being here, Dr. Glickschiller. Um, so we'll go ahead and start asking okay. questions. Um, so first, I'd just like to say your work on Nations Unbound was so important in defining and examining transnationalism and has continued to be incredibly influential in migration studies. Were you surprised by the great influence of your work? And can you speak a little bit about your own understanding of transnationalism and how that's changed over time? Okay. Um, well, it's not my sole work. It's mm -hmm. the, a product, that book, and a preceding um, edited book that, that I co-edited was the work of Linda Bash, Christine, Christina Zantenblank, and myself. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much a collective and collaborative project, and I prefer to work collectively and collaboratively because mm -hmm. I think that creates a much richer scholarship. And there's, sort of, there's a triangulation with people with different kinds of life experiences, different kinds of social positionings, come together and, and see things in, the, in, you know, in, a, in a mutual way then you feel that you've got something. It's not just your particular voice, but you've got some kind of analysis that holds up, reflecting various different life experiences. Mm -hmm. When we began writing, working on, on a, developing a transnational migration paradigm, which was in the 1980s, actually, we knew that this was very important. We had a sense that this was urgent, that we were setting out a new direction for migration studies and that we had to organize a way to be heard. So from the beginning we were convinced that we had something to say. We didn't think it was original in the sense that other people had never said any of this before. We knew that we were building on, on what was in existing scholarship, but it hadn't been brought together as a whole challenge to migration studies. So the, research was there, the data was there, some of the insights were there, but it wasn't put together in an in a in a alternative 
research paradigm that challenged both assimilationism and, um, and, and challenged the focus solely on immigrant identities and really looked at the way people lived their lives in two or more nation states at the same time. Mm -hmm. that's what, so, that, so that's what we wanted to say. Um, now, there were more parts of that question. Let me see. You asked also, uh, has, has your own understanding changed? changed? On how, and while we were, we, we, well, let me go back to the question of were we surprised. Mm -hmm. So we weren't surprised that, um, that, that it resonated because we knew that this, in fact, was the way people were living their lives. Um, but um, so it would resonate w both by people with people from migrant backgrounds and also with migrant scholars who had this in their data but didn't have a way to express it. But there, um, we were concerned that it would be taken up by nation states and used as a new way to sort of exploit immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so that happened too. So we weren't surprised, but we were concerned about that so that migrant-sending countries would see immigrants as a new form of, um, of, of cash, a new form of uh, a way of getting funding for, for the national economies. But um, what has surprised me over the last 20 or so years since the publication of Nations Unbound is the way that the global perspective of the, of the book was ignored. So the, the descriptive aspects of the book, uh, the, 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 the book looked at the way people build familial ties transnationally, uh, the, the way people build political ties, the way people build religious ties, the way people build economic ties. Um, that was taken up. And the concept even of simultaneity, which was in the book, that people live across borders but also become part of the society that they live in is, was taken up. But the idea that, that we, need an, we need a framework that can explain why people do this, why they migrate, why they settle, why they maintain ties, and, um, and how that relates to what was happening in the sending countries and the receiving countries, a, a framework that can put it all together, which is also in the book, was ignored increasingly ignored and people looked only at the age, human agency part of it and not at the structural part of it and to, for us they come together you have to look at both mm -hmm. you have to look at both you can't just have a structural analysis without understanding how people um, what people do in the face in the face of the conditions and opportunities and barriers they that they face but also how they contribute to or they struggle against and change the structural conditions. Mm -hmm. This was all in the book. And the other thing that surprised us, and, um, um, and I felt I've had to reiterate, is that we talked about the role of, of nation states. We said that sending states um, began to see themselves as deterritorialized. In other words, they continued to claim their citizens all around wherever they settled. But, um, but they continue to say that 
that those, these people have some kind of re responsibility to the sending state. And the nation states where the receiving states played a role in trying to sort of tame this transnational behavior and say, well, it's all fine as long as the, the like, if it's in the U.S., the American flag, you can have many flags, but the U.S. flag has to be on top. Mm -hmm. That's what a police mm -hmm. official once told me when I interviewed them. Mm -hmm. So that, so they're, they're both, um, both uh, state discourses and narratives respond, were responding, and we looked at the way they did this. Uh, yet we were quoted over and over again as if we, Nations Unbound, announced the end of nation states, the end of nationalism, mm -hmm. that now there was this global flow of people and goods, and there was part of this whole celebration of flows that you can find in Arjuna Pattarai's work. We were not saying that. Um, we, were look, we were looking at continuing structures and borders and border regimes. So um, in the past 20 years, um, you know, my work has developed in terms of really trying to reiterate over and over again um, that we need a global perspective on migration. And I've written a number of articles on that and a, and a global perspective on migration and development. But also, and more recently, I've tried to stress that we responded to the conditions that existed then. And people have taken up the research as if the world hasn't changed, as if people can, in fact, live simultaneously in two or more places. But border regimes are changing. Mm -hmm. Citizenship rights are being attenuated, the ability to naturalize and stay. The ability to be, be, um, obtain citizenship in another country is being attenuated. So in that, in that restriction of the ability to settle or, and the ability to move and the ability for family reunion um, that you see in, in Europe, the res very highly restricted ability for family reunion, um, then the basic assumptions that we made about the way migrants can hedge their bets and live in two and more places in the same time has, um, has to be rethought. Mm -hmm. And so aspects of what people do and, and what the conditions are and what that leads to in terms of maintaining home ties, for example. When we were writing in a situation where Mexican immigrants could come without documents and then sort of wade across the Rio Grande and then go back and forth. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they 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 faced hassle, but not a wall. Mm -hmm. You know, not risking their lives every time, not paying thousands and thousands of dollars um, to get to come here. You know, these huge amounts, the huge indebtedness, the, the the involvement of criminal gangs, the whole migration industry, all this has changed. So we have to we have to examine the whole the way we look at migrant. Um, migrancy and mobility and also um, our global perspective in light of the current conditions, the current conjuncture and what that means. Mm -hmm. So that uh, perhaps Thank that you. answers your question. Yes. You have focused recently on issues of cosmopolitanism and work to bring new meaning to the term. Why and how has your focus shifted towards issues of cosmopolitanism? Can you explain some of your evolution as a scholar? wouldn't exactly say my work, my focus has shifted. Mm -hmm. I try to encompass in 
in the global perspective I've been developing uh, and my understanding of how migrants uh, live their lives by settling and maintaining various forms of transnational ties and the barriers to that uh, by looking at more closely at, at the process of settlement because there were, there developed a within a, a growing anti-immigrant settle, uh, sentiment, a narrative that said the the problem with these people is they won't learn our ways. That's what the politicians keep saying in both the U.S. and Europe in different kinds of ways and, and other places too. The problem is these people they just keep their culture, they keep their language. Immigrants didn't used to do this. This is what they say in the U.S. Now these people just keep to themselves and their culture, and so they threat threaten our social fabric. And and so, and of course, any evidence of transnational ties is is taken in that kind of analysis as a evidence that people aren't settling in. Mm -hmm. So I've needed a way, a language to look more closely at the process of how people settle um, and with whom they actually build social ties and uh, who gets involved in transnational networks. And I felt that um, there was some way we could use the term cosmo cosmopolitanism to uh, speak about what happens on the ground because what happens on the ground I've found over and over again is not just that people um, hang out with people who, who are like them in the sense of ethnicity but in fact they hang out with people who are like them in all kinds of ways that have nothing to do with their their national background mm -hmm. so they make ties with people because their parents, you know, and they're raising children, or their neighbors, or their co-workers, or they, or their, or their professionals, or their, they, they have some kind of interest together. They, they, you know, they like video games. They mm -hmm. like, I mean, they, they like uh, the same films. They, I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which people connect to other people that are not seen because it's assumed that immigrants only hang out with people who share their background. Okay, So the standing definition for many people of cosmopolitanism has been um, openness to the other, tolerance of the other. That creates a, a uniform community of the we the national we, uh, very often with a sense of a homogeneous racialized we, like we white folks and we white folks in, in, in the UK, or we white folks in the US, or something like that, are, and then the appreciation of this diverse other that's coming here, or uh, coming wherever to, um, to make life more interesting, uh, and more variable because they bring all their diversity. That's part of the way the term cosmopolitanism has come to be used. But I thought we could challenge that just like we had, just in the way we had challenged the way migration was understood. We could challenge settlement, okay? And we could say, um, actually, people form, uh, who are considered um, natives and who are considered considered um, immigrants 
form ties based on domains of commonality that they come to share in their daily interaction. And the reason we don't talk about this is nobody looks. And we need a word to document this. And mm -hmm. so I've called it cosmopolitan sociability. Mm -hmm. uh, where people bond, it's not a full bond, but nobody ever forms a full bond. It's, it's one of the ways that people connect to each other. So that's what I tried to do. Now when I started to look at that, I realized that just it, we can extend the concept of simultaneity. So people maintain their family networks, they maintain various ties across borders, um, which may or may not be organized by ethnicity. So they have all kinds of transnational ties, and they have all kinds of local ties. Simultaneously, they're not just organized around national origins or ethno-religious background. Mm -hmm. is, is that being clear? Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So is the, is the concept of cosmopolitanism applicable to all migrant communities? Well, um, I don't use the word migrant community. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and I don't think, um, and I'm not applying it to, to, to all migrants, mm -hmm. okay? This whole, the whole trajectory of, of the analysis is against the assuming that migrants form communities. This is a research question. Mm -hmm. I'm, in my own experience with, with immigrants from Haiti, and I began working with immigrants from Haiti when they were, during the early days of, of migrant settlement. So um, no, but people from Haiti didn't want to know each other mm -hmm. because they were divided by class, they were divided by politics, you know. So, so people, before they met each when they realized that the other person was Haitian, they would check out, you know, what's the family background of this person? Is this somebody I want to know, you know, uh, or not? And so there was certainly not a sense of community. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was unique to Haitian and I, Haitians, and it wasn't just then. And then the um, people from Haiti were given money to form Haitian community organizations, using the word community, mm -hmm. Haitian community centers, okay. Uh, and then those people, and I worked closely with them, we would speak in the name of the Haitian community. We would go to meetings and we'd say, the Haitian community wants this, the Haitian community wants that, mm -hmm. trying to get resources and, and English, English language pro, um, education and job training to Haitian immigrants. And so we would imagine and project the narrative of community. Most Haitian mm -hmm. immigrants in New York City knew nothing about this. Mm -hmm. When Haitians were labeled as people with AIDS, and, um, then a huge outswell, uh, you know, uh, outpouring of, of resistance to that happened on the part of Haitians, and, and tens of thousands of people came into the street and claimed to speak as the Haitian community, and the sense of the term became embodied and visual, and so in that sense, there was a Haitian community, at least at that time, in relationship to those issues. So, but if you just assume that people are a community, mm -hmm. you can't see this, okay. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's one thing. Now, in terms of cosmopolitanism, I'm saying that 
um, people, both of migrant background and not, form ties with each other based on some kinds of domains of mutuality, of commonality, some affective, and uh, there's an emotional aspect, there's a a substantive aspect in terms of things that they're interested in Mm -hmm. and that they share. It doesn't tie them totally together. It brings them together in, you know, in certain circumstances around certain, certain things. Um, and migrants do this not just with other migrants. They do this with non-migrants too. Okay, and that's so. Um, when those relationships are formed, whether it's with a, a fellow migrant, because we can't just assume just because you come from the same country or the same. Um, uh, ethno-religious group you like each other when that's f- actually formed whatever the background we could call that cosmopolitan sociability and it, and it has nothing to do with cultural background it has something to do with some other kinds of co- of interest okay. that's so I, that's how I would thank answer you. that thank question you. thank you and you've said that movement doesn't necessarily create cosmopolitanism, um, but what about individuals who never move? Um, how can these individuals be considered cosmopolitan? Um, do they need to know someone who has moved or migrated? Yeah. Um, no, I don't. I think it's 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 a false equation to create link mobility mm-hmm. to this openness to domains of commonality. Mm-hmm to open this to not the other, but other people. I think this is part of the human capacity that we tend not to study. Um, it, it It doesn't make sense to only focus on mobility. People can can um, some people move and they learn new things and they meet new people and they and they become they have all these experiences of, mm-hmm. of, of, of openness and some people move and they're traumatized and they you know and they, and they never come out of, you know they don't want to go any place except exactly what they knew I mean I had a you know a relative or a relative of a relative who learned just the roots in Pittsburgh Ohio of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just the the trolley routes, and she wouldn't go anyplace else. So you know, so, and then she come back home. Yeah. You know? So there's a, people are different, you know. And and part of our problem is we just categorize people in terms of migrant, non-migrant. We use the national border as some kind of division between people's behavior. This is, I think, uh, extremely suspect. We um, sometimes it matters because there are border regimes that brand difference and make people react in different ways. If you're undocumented, you're going to ha- you know, have to hide more. So that will restrict you in particular ways. But to assume always that this is the relevant, relevant explanation, mm-hmm. it's just bad social science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so if you're living and you've never, in a place and you've never moved, um, uh, you've never gone anywhere. You can, you know, if and you read or you watch television or you watch films, and that gives you a sense of bonding with other people. Then you're developing your cosmopolitan sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you know, when you meet somebody, uh, you meet people 
who are, you know, are classified as different from you in some way. It may not be ethnically. It may be you're, you're Catholic, you know, and they're Protestant, you know. Um, um, and, and, and suddenly you find the capacity to see um, some kind of sharing human experience that otherwise you wouldn't have had because of your upbringing. That can be bonding, that kind of bonding too. Much of your work challenges binary thinking in relation to culture, nationalism, and identity. For instance, you discuss the dichotomy of self and the stranger. Why has this sort of thinking been such an issue in the social sciences? How is your understanding of cosmopolitanism helpful in challenging this problem? Um, yes, I ask myself that all the time. Why the persistence of this binary? It is so strong. It came through some of the discussion we've just had. We just automatically assume migrant community, non-migrant, or, or m movement, non-movement. And we think in terms of binaries. Now there's we seem to. Now there's, there's different um, trains of thought or different kinds of theories about this. I mean, the structuralist, various kinds of structuralist theories, like, from, like those of Levi-Strauss, for example, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and those that um, base themselves on linguistics and some readings of brain science say this is hardwired. Mm -hmm. we, the humans think this is how we learn to think. This is how we learn language. We learn in terms of contrast. So, of course, we think in binaries. Um, I don't think that. I think that's an imposition of a Western category on top of the brain science. You know, I think it yeah. works the other way around, on top of the reading of, of Amazonian myths. I think, actually, people think, you know, have a capacity for multiplicities, and if you really do an analysis, of, a linguistic analysis, all phonemic contrasts are not yes, no. You know. It may be that electro, maybe that our computers work in terms of positive and, and negative mm -hmm. charges of electricity. But I don't. But human languages can have more than one alternative, mm -hmm. and humans seem to have in different cultural tra uh, traditions and places have um, concepts of simultaneity and multiplicity that don't seem to have developed in the West. And, um, uh, and you can read, you can read, or they have some kind of relationality. So you can read um, Asian traditions, uh, you know, of yin and yang. All right, you can say that's a binary, or you can say that's a relationship, mm -hmm. which is very different from, a, from a, the contrast. So, uh, so this is a topic of ongoing, go, ongoing debate. But I do think in Western social science, there is a, a um, from uh, um, the beginning of organized um, social science, there was an assumption of binaries, and there was an assumption. There's sort of a just-so story, a narrative of origins. In the beginning, people lived in closed, bounded communities, and they saw they had a sense of, com of commonness and stranger. Mm. And this is how, um, and so the concept of the stranger is built in to um, into Western um, social science, political science, sociology. 
Um, and um, some people read anthropology that way. But if you go and you actually look, even at the anthropological works that are cited to prove that this really was the case, and you read the ethnographies, that's not what, what you see. You see, yes, people may have lived in this village, and they may have seen the neighbors as cannibals, but they also intermarried with the neighbors. Mm -hmm. Or where the boundary of the village was, or where the boundary of the culture was very flexible. And, and, and mobile. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this, this, this walled life mm -hmm. that was envisioned out of the walled cities mm -hmm. of, of, of Europe. So, Thank you very much. Yes, uh, I, I wonder whether I'm right or wrong to understand the concept of uh, the cosmopolitanism that migrant communities have established a number of Hindu temples in major cities in the United Kingdom. Uh, Canada and Australia. So this may indicate a preservation of Hindu religious identity in a foreign land. So how might the concept of cosmopolitanism be applied to this context in order to understand the maintaining the particular identity? Well, um, I think that that kind of narrative needs some actual research investigation. Because the Hindu temple in India, well, first of all, Hindu temples in India and the concept of Hinduism, as you know, has changed over time. And that, you know, and had a lot, and the British, the, the development, the British colonialism, a lot of the scholarship says, changed the, you know, and, and categorized and sort of fixed religious boundaries in, in, in India that were much more fluid. So that the, the, there was a lot of more local con multiplicities of religions on the ground in villages, be, you know, at the time that the British got there, and over time, the British created a concept of of Hinduism, Hinduism you know, yeah. with a capital H, you know, <laughs> as a, 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 as compared to Islam with a capital I, you know, and, and, and but actually that's not what people practice, and, and in some ways that's yeah. not what people still practice. Mm -hmm. So, um, so on the ground you had this multiplicity. Then when people migrate, religions always change when people migrate, and depending on where they migrate, they change in different ways. Um, so that um, so so that so that to read what you find in in London as Hinduism is to ignore the ways in which the practice and the belief have actually changed, because you have people who come from different parts of India with different traditions, and they come to London, and then they might come to the temple or not, or you might have one kinship group. That defines itself as this is the this is their Hinduism, and this becomes so. There's variations in which, various ways in which, what is in London may not be what's on the ground in in India. Um, to the extent that there's been this coming together, let's say you have. So we can't have this category Hindu temple. We have to look on the ground and say, who goes? Mm -hmm. Who goes there? Is it the continuity of a particular group, kin-based, caste-based group 
that um, is now continuing and calling itself a, a, you know, Hinduism? And, or is it people from different kinds of more regional traditions coming together at the same temple? If it's people from different traditions, it's people whom would never wise have met. So they're, they're in fact bonding around some kind of openness um, that they wouldn't have had back, you know, wouldn't have had the opportunity back home. So that's a, an occasion where migration can lead to openness. You know, they, so, so the social sciences defining it as continuity on the ground, it's, it's amazing change. Okay, mm -hmm. so we so in that sense, looking at the fact that p strangers who didn't have much in common except a label, now are getting along and building something together, is a coming together. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's how I'd I'd approach it. Excellent. Now we understood. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the the book whose cosmopolitanism has a lot of different definitions um, of the word, and some are a little bit problematic. Um, I was wondering, how do some cities use cosmopolitanism as a marketing tool? Um, what are some of the most or the more problematic understandings of the concept? And what is the relationship between cosmopolitanism and capitalism? Yeah, okay. A few small questions. <laughs> Just a little yeah. Okay. Um, so let's start with the, those, pe those people, not me, those people who define cosmopolitanism in terms of openness to the other. Mm -hmm. um, and let's look at the, the, um, the task that faces city developers and, and local politicians who in a, in, in a, in a very neoliberal world find that they can no longer depend on national resources or public resources to build their city. Cities have always been, to a certain degree, um, within Western capitalism at least, or um, in um, competition with each other. If you look at the world's fairs, you know, the, the, the Chicago Exposition and at the uh, end of the 19th century, and or you, you look, you um, you look at these these efforts to build um, uh, these incredible expositions in Paris and Chicago, wherever you you see those were really city-based projects mm -hmm. with national resonances to try to. Um, create commerce and interest and investment in the city. So this is not totally new. Mm -hmm. It's just um, after that point, there was a period when nation states were investing resources in urban public works, and there was a tax structure, um, a city-based tax structure to build. Um, there was a commitment to building infrastructure and sewers and parks and libraries and and um, mun uh, mun municipal resources. Now cities find themselves again more on their own. So they have to attract capital. And to attract capital, they ha also have to convince investors that they have the workforce that will make a perfect place to invest in various kinds of high-tech knowledge, science, medical industries, tourism. So they try to brand themselves, right? <coughs> it's 
almost like they, they do read from this playbook on how to brand your city. So they're convinced if they're convinced they need a certain kind of workforce, then they need to a certain kind of image to attract a workforce. That they um, people like Richard Florida have um, have um, have gone around the world preaching that at, more before the crash in 2008, um, but now sort of revitalizing his narrative now. Um, the way for a city to get ahead is to, cre is to um, create the cultural diversity that will attract the high-tech people, mm -hmm. that will attract the, the high-tech high industries, that will attract the investors. Therefore, how do you, the question becomes, how do you attract these creative people? The assumption also in his work and, the, and a whole sort of industry that developed with it is high-tech high people are young, mobile, and they like to consume cultural difference. Mm -hmm. They like diversity. They don't want to live in boring cities where everybody's the same. Mm -hmm. They like restaurants and shops that, you know, that, that display goods from all over the world. Mm -hmm. They like an edgy city a bit. Okay, so that, it's in that light that cities started to brand themselves as cosmopolitan, with the idea that this is, come here, you'll get a taste of the other. We're a city that, that has a taste of the other. Mm -hmm. Now within that, there's all kinds of contradictions, because the more they develop a city centered to house and, and, and feed all, the, all these, the, the creative class in Richard Florida's mm -hmm. uh, words, the more the people who are actually from migrant backgrounds, some of them are pushed out of those mm -hmm. city centers, can't afford that, you know, pushed out of the industries they've developed or the jobs they've developed or the shops they've developed. And uh, other kinds of migrants who are high-skilled are, are um, attracted. So there's migrants come in different classes with different backgrounds, as we know, you know, sitting around this table and everywhere um, these days. There are there are there are um, international students. There are there are professionals from all over the world, um, and then there are skilled workers, and then there are businessmen, and then there are small businessmen, and then there are uh, service workers. All that are of whom are needed to build the city, but the cosmopolitan city builders only cater to one sector of that population: mm -hmm. the high-income people even though they need them all. Mm -hmm. okay, thank you. How might you respond to critical views of cosmopolitanism that link the concept to consumption, neoliberalism, and nationalism? Well, this is part of what I was saying in the previous answer. It's one variety of the use of the term. It ignores the way people actually build cities. Cities everywhere have always built, been built by migration, rural-urban migration, as well as migration across borders. Rural people are culturally different from people from the city. Countries have regional diversities of, 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 of language and culture. Um, so all these diversities, not just diversities from different um, other parts of the world, have always built built the city, um, but um, this, this is ignored 
in the in the, in the understanding of uh, what what cities are and you know and how people relate to each other um, in the neoliberal version of cosmopolitan the neoliberal version of cosmopolitanism markets to a particular strata of high income mobile people who are assumed to to like to consume cultural difference. The irony is that if you do research with some of these populations or you look at how these these populations live, they're usually the, the least open in terms of their social relations, or often they're the least open, that they live in gated, gated areas, that they're afraid of other parts of this city and other people, that they only know people of their same class, um, they fill some of the stereotypes of the um, provincial, um, even though they're, they're, they're mobile, because they live in their own um, very sheltered, sheltered world often. Not all of them, but, um, but, 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 but some of them. Um, they live in sort of an expat world. So they go from city to city, but they um, but they don't really form the social ties that less well-off migrants often form in terms of local life. Because less well-off migrants have to find whatever kinds of social ties they can to help themselves. Does that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nationalism. Well, that that's that's an interesting question because. Um, Cosmopolitanism is often seen as the opposite of nationalism. So the other thing, sometimes it's seen in terms of this, these, um, these uh, profes- highly, profes- highly mobile professionals, sometimes it's seen in terms of, yeah, who are seen as like having no local roots, having so, no nation. Now, uh, it's true of capitalists, and some one of your questions, I don't mm-hmm. think I fully answered. Capitalism has no loyalties. Capital goes where it can make the, you know, big corporations are, are um, while they may benefit from nationalist rhetorics and fund extremely nationalist movements. Actually, when you look at where capital goes, it goes to where it can make the highest source of profit mm-hmm. from the cheap, cheapest labor with the least restriction and the least taxes and the most benefits, period, bottom line. That's how, how, how capital works. Um, people, um, on the other hand, um, uh, are capable of multiplicities. So they're, the binary of here's the cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitan who has no nation, and here's the rooted person who is just mired in their tradition and, and is a local person, just doesn't hold up in, in, in when you actually research, as we've been talking. The local people can have all kinds of ties to They live in a world that's actually constantly refigured by elsewhere and have, ha, can have uh, imaginaries and social ties that link them to elsewhere. And people who travel can live within a very cocooned-like like world. So that's one problem. Um, Linked to that is the fact that if people have multiple identities, they can have a rooted identity and an open identity at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, one doesn't necessarily negate the other. 
Um, it can, but it doesn't necessarily do. I, I learned this when I was working with uh, Georges Ferron, um, and, and it comes out in our book, Georges Woke Up Laughing, because I was have always been skeptical, um, having grown up in the United States, of, of nationalism, which it seemed to me was being rallied to uh, as a justification for uh, exploitation of people around around the world, justifying war and aggression. And he, George, who shares my political outview, um, outlook in many ways, was a, was a fervent Haitian nationalist. But when I went to Haiti and I interviewed, we interviewed together very, very poor people, people who were living in squatter settlements, people who had almost nothing. And they expressed their, and they, their fervent sense of being Haitian and their nationalism. I realized that to be part of a, an oppressed nation state such as, such as, as, as Haiti, um, which has been racialized and stereotyped and, and those racializations have been used to exploit Haitians and the whole country of Haiti, that to assert nationalism is a claim for racial equality. So for them, the reading of the Haitian flag says, says, the Haitians rose up in a revolution against slavery. We led the world in this demand for equality. We're just as good as everybody else. That's what it means to be Haitian. You know, to be part of a proud n nation that has defied slavery and, and stood for the equality of man and it stood for the missions of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity. That's what the Haitian flag means to poor Haitians. It's not what it means to rich Haitians. To rich Haitians, it means, you know, a way of staying in power and, and exploiting the majority of the people. So there can be a nationalism that um, um, speaks to the rest of the world. So they, the other thing that, 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 the, that these people, uh, the impoverished people, were saying to us is, we stand with oppressed people everywhere. The Haitian flag stands for all oppressed people. Mm -hmm. Not to be on top of them, not to be better than them, but to stand for that struggle, for social justice everywhere. This was articulated by people who had never gone to school, never studied the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, but there was a strong oral tradition of, of revolutionary resistance um, that exists in Haiti. So. So that's where nationalism and what I would call cosmopolitanism can come together. Thank you. Just, uh, what projects are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a book with Aisha Shalar about the relationship between um, migrants in, and and disempowered cities, or cities that don't have a lot of wealth and power. Um, what I've been saying is that all our theory about migration comes, or most of it, has come until very recently, to, and, and our research, from studies in global cities. And, um, and, and that's not the only place where migrants live. It's not the only place where other people <laughs> yeah. live, right? Here we are in Lexington, Kentucky. What if we, now in, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been more 
research on migrants settling in the south and south of the U.S., settling in non-global cities, but it's not theorized. So we have this research, but it isn't put together. What if we if we begin here and we say, what? How how can we broaden our understanding of of of, of migrant settlement and transnational connection by understanding how migrants build cities that are not these globally powerful cities. Mm -hmm. So we've written about this in um, actually the past um, 20, 15 years. We've written a series of articles about this. And we want to bring those, but we've never been able to sort of bring it together. So we've looked at um, various forms of, we've critiqued the idea of ethnic entrepreneur, and we've mm -hmm. showed how in these cities, bit, uh, people of migrant background build businesses that cater to everybody and become part of the city economy. And we've looked at uh, religion, and we've seen how people of migrant background use religion that, in religious, well, I've looked at Pentecostalism particularly, mm -hmm. um, how people have um, um, worked, joined with people of native, you know, who are seen as native to this to the city or country, to make uh, claims that they speak in the name of in the name of of, of, of Jesus, and therefore they their vision um, belong is a claim to the land that they belong there because. Um, the dividing line is not between foreigner or native, but between those who are on the side of Jesus and those who are on the side of the mm -hmm. devil. So this is another way of turning around the narrative and um, becomes in, in cities um, that are not global cities, these kinds of uh, religious narratives can become part of local politics mm -hmm. um, and change the view of people toward migrants. Um, and we've looked, and I've looked at cosmopolitan sociability, how people actually build ties to local people, and how that kind of sociability is actually part of city making. So we're trying to bring those different chapters um, together in a, in a single book mm -hmm. uh, that um, then challenges uh, and develops the concept of uh, displacement and emplacement. The, uh, so the other thing that's going on in this book is to theorize the changed global conjuncture, um, the idea that there's uh, a revitalization of, of the processes of capital accumulation through uh, dispossession uh, and accumulation through dispossession, that those processes tie together the migrants who come to these cities and the people who are living in these cities who have been at these cities have increasingly struggled, struggling because if cities compete with each other, there are not only winners, there are losers. Mm -hmm. You know, So you can have this glitzy development of a downtown and doesn't do anything for the life of most of the people. Mm -hmm. and, and the redevelopment really isn't a, su a success. So, um, so, so in terms of those, that dispossession, there's a sense of displacement, and people lose their social position as, um, at, in some places, and their country and social position in other places. So we want to see whether um, we can theorize that to understand 
what's behind the processes of settlement and connection between migrants and non-migrants in these cities. Mm -hmm. So that's the pro current project. Thank you. And who are you working with on that project? Aisha Scheller. She's, um, a, she's a professor of anthropology mm -hmm. at the University of Vienna. And um, she, yeah, so that, so she brings a different, a, a, a different background and um, a different history. She's also uh, been educated in part in Montreal, part in Turkey, and part in Germany. So she, she, she has the sense of um, multiple emplacements, mm -hmm. and, um, and we, we, we find it very helpful to think together. Mm -hmm. She's a wonderful scholar. You should check out her work. And finally, we'd like to know um, what advice you have for newer scholars, scholars who are just sort of starting to engage in issues of transnationalism, uh, migration, cosmopolitanism. Ah. Um. I would say that it's very important to look at the changing conditions in the world and to theorize that. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm most concerned about, and that's what I spoke about yesterday, and that's why I, I didn't want to offend people, but I w used the term dead ends, is mm -hmm. that I, don't, I think that the kind of scholarship that's been going on produces interesting and valuable descriptions, but it doesn't, if, if the um, project is to really understand the world, it, it doesn't take us there. And if the project is to have a scholarship that is part of struggles for social justice, it definitely doesn't take us mm -hmm. there. Because to undo that, we have to understand what's going on. As it impacts locally, so, so many students, especially in something like anthropology, or I would say in literature, you know, um, um, say, well, how can I do that? It's not my specialty. I don't study economics. I, you know, I'm just here. I'm just here in Lexington, Kentucky. What can I, but what can I do about understanding the whole world? But the whole, that's why I, I emphasize the whole world is right here. The transnational connections um, change Lexington, change where we are, change what we see, change, influence the writing of novels and films, influence migrant life wherever we are. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to understand what they are to see what's happening in front of us. So by looking at how the global and the national and the local are constantly interacted in front of our eyes and within our materials, whatever they are, we can and to we can speak to to what the current situation is as but it also does take some comparative reading mm -hmm. i think the other thing that really bothers me it's a bigger problem in in european education mm -hmm. including the uk than in the us is that people don't read comparatively mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to launch a whole comparative project but you don't know what's unique about your material unless you know what's, unless you know about other people, what this, what your research question looks like uh, in other people's research in other places and other times. Mm -hmm. And so people think that it's their group, <laughs> it's their migrant group 
who do it this way, and mm -hmm. I think, my goodness, that, but you know, but Polish migrants did that, you know, and you know, um, in the U.S. a uh, hundred years ago, or you know, my goodness, you know, um, um, migrants from from India and China have done similar things from you know that that are compared to. Um, Moroccans or Iranians or Haitians, and, and and that's one of the fascinating things about migration research is that not just the differences, the similarities. Mm -hmm. Why do people who come from different places in the world um, um, uh, do such similar things? You know, um, come across, do build transnational families, no matter what kind of family structure they have. You know. Um, what is it in the in the social situation they face that leads them to certain kinds of similar responses? And then what's different? Mm -hmm. So we need this kind of comparative perspective. So I would really urge students uh, who are interested in engaging the, in the transnational migration paradigm and with ideas about cosmopolitanism to read historically and comparatively so they have some sense of, of, of the forces that define their own, their own research question. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Committee on Social Theory, and Social Theory 600 Transnational Lives for making this podcast possible.